I started realizing that if I retired and all of these experiences at war and at peace as a military doctor and as a civilian doctor didn't get written down, then they just might die with me. And they're good stories and they're fascinating stories. And they're every single chapter is a patient experience or a life experience becoming a doctor that I've told many, many times before as teaching points to residents and, and, and physician extenders so they can learn with that without having to experience some of the good and bad things that I experienced. And so it took me only less, less than a year to write. It was just published last year. And it is, in fact, designed to be the combination of stories about doctors as medical students, as learning residents, as young doctors, as doctors at war, doctors in challenging situations, such that anybody that ever thinks they want to be a doctor, read this book. It'll give you a good, true experience of what it means to go through the very difficult seven years of training or more that it takes to be a doctor. Welcome visionaries, creators, innovators, entrepreneurs, leaders, and growth seekers of all types to the Passion Struck Podcast. Hi, I'm John Miles, a peak performance coach, multi-industry CEO, Navy veteran, and entrepreneur on a mission to make passion go viral for millions worldwide. And each week I do so by sharing with you an inspirational message and interviewing high achievers from all walks of life to unlock their secrets and lessons to becoming passion struck. The purpose of our show is to serve you, the listener, by giving you tips, tasks, and activities you can use to achieve peak performance and pursue the passion-driven life you have always wanted to have. Now, let's become passion struck. Hi, welcome to episode 66 of the Passion Struck Podcast with retired Army Colonel, Navy SEAL, Dr. Robert Adams. And if you haven't caught the other episodes, and I'll leave them in the outro, we are doing a whole month of Passion Struck Podcasts dedicated to veterans who served during the global war on terror. And I wanted to give the audience a huge shout out for helping us pass 100,000 downloads of the podcast and over 1,400 five-star likes. Thank you so much for helping us on our goal of making passion go viral for millions worldwide. I'm gonna start out today's episode with a quote from our guest, Dr. Bob Adams, from his book, Six Days of Impossible. And in it, he writes, when a man finds that it is his destiny to suffer, he must accept his suffering as a task, his single and unique task. No one can relieve him of his suffering or suffer in his place. His unique opportunity lies in the way he bears his burden. Now, let me tell you a little bit more about Dr. Bob Adams. He is a family physician within the UNC health system. He entered medical school after serving as an elite SEAL for over 12 years. He is the author of Six Days of Impossible, Navy Hell Week, and also the book, Swords and Saints, A Doctor's Journey. It is a must read for future doctors and those wishing for change in the healthcare system. He graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy and from Bud's class of 81, obtained his MBA from James Madison University, and went to medical school at Wake Forest. And in our discussion today, we talk about his path from the Naval Academy to becoming a SEAL, 
the biggest lessons he learned during his 12 years as a Navy SEAL, why he made the pivot to becoming a doctor, and why he chose the Army over the Navy, how he found himself becoming the flight surgeon for the Army's Delta Force, what he has learned over his 30 years of being a doctor, and why it's vital you become your own best advocate to navigating the health system. Now, let's become passion struck. I am so excited today to have Dr. Robert Adams on the show. Dr. Bob, thank you so much for joining the Passion Struck Podcast. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, I always love to have Naval Academy grads on the show, but you're not just the normal Naval Academy grad. There are not that many Naval Academy grads who end up retiring as an Army colonel. So I want to get to that story, but can you tell me you know, what prompted you to take the step? I always like to hear this of going to the Naval Academy in the first place. Sure, absolutely. And uh, I get asked that question a lot. Plus, who you vote for in the Army, Army Navy football game, because I have 18 years in the Army and 18 years in the Navy. But, you know, I mentioned it in my, my book, both my books, in the SEAL training book and my doctor book that I had no interest in the military at all when I was in high school. Growing up in a military family, moved every three years. My dad was a, an 06 uh, aviator in Pensacola, Florida, when a article hit the Reader's Digest entitled Super Commandos of the Wetlands. And I, it was about announcing the existence of the secret SEAL team group that was formed by Kennedy in 62. And this was 67. I read it and I went, that's what I want to do. And I, you know, walked into to my dad's uh, office. I said, hey, dad, how do I get into the Naval Academy? Because I'm going to be a SEAL. He didn't even know what a SEAL was. And he goes, I don't care. You want to go to the Naval Academy? Let me help. And I, I just told him, I said, if I'm going to be in uh, the SEALs, I might as well be an officer. If I'm going to be an officer, I might as well go to the Naval Academy. Like my dad, my granddad, you know, did. And my great granddad was West Point and they're all career military men. And so that's where, that's where it came from. I just said, if I'm going to go into the military, I think I'll do it as an officer. And, um, and, and I had, you know, I had lived in the Naval Academy superintendent's home when I was five and six years old, because my granddad was superintendent of the Naval Academy. So, you know, going to Army Navy football games was old hat, you know, it just, it felt right at the time. Well, you know, I had recently done an interview with Vice Admiral Ted Carter, who has been the superintendent the longest of, of any superintendent consecutively. And one thing that struck me when we spoke was he said that in all the military, the superintendent's house is the second most visited house there is. And I couldn't believe it, but he, he told me during his tenure, he had over 90,000 people in, in and out of it. So I can't imagine what that would have been like um, being a youngster and uh, seeing all that. You, you probably remember as plebes, we had to go to the superintendent's house for a formal reception and meet the, the uh, superintendent and his wife. Most classes, I think, still do that. Uh, but mine was sort of interesting. When I showed up as a new plebe and I walked into the servant's entrance to give my hat to the steward there, I looked at his name tag and I remembered him. From when I lived there, and I, you know, I said, uh, "Arkesa, were you by any chance here when Admiral Smedberg was here?" And he stops, he looks at my name tag, and he goes, 
Adams, you're not you're not little Bobby Adams, are you? <laughs> and I, yeah, he remembered me. I remembered him, and it was uh, it was fun getting back in there. I told you before the show that my father was Marine Corps Force Recon, but yep. when they started up uh, Force Recon back in the late fifties, there wasn't a Force Recon school, so the first few classes they actually send them to UDT training underwater demolition training, if, if you're not familiar with that and you're a listener. Um, wh- what is the difference between what a UDT soldier does and what a SEAL does for the person who doesn't understand the two different fields? Well, I'm going to answer that by giving you a today answer, which is there is no difference. But I'm going to step back to 1987 to answer your question that prior to the redesignation of underwater demolition teams to SEAL teams. There was a mission a difference in that, and my first assignment was to underwater demolition team 11, which in 1987 was renamed SEAL team five, because special operations had a different mission from World War II until 1987, which was we owned the water up into the high water line. So our missions in underwater demolition all ended theoretically at the high water line. So we weren't creeping on land and doing what were in Vietnam became SEAL team missions. And the SEAL team traditionally had the mission from the high water line inland. And so SEAL teams had trucks, underwater demolition teams had boats and scuba gear, but we both needed to do both and we both trained to do both. And SEAL training is identical for both. It was simply which team you were assigned to determined which mission you was your primary mission. And the reason the change happened is quite logical. There were only one SEAL team and two UDT teams on each coast in the 70s when I was there. And so the missions got mixed up all the time. You'd grab whoever was available and say, go do a water mission, go do a land mission. We're all trained equally for both. And so what was happening, we're running back and forth, borrowing each other gear to do whatever red missions we want. And uh, finally they go, okay, time out. Everybody's a SEAL team. Everybody's responsible for all missions from the water to the land. And that's how that change happened. Okay. Well, that's a great explanation. I, I, I didn't realize the origin of that transition, but it makes complete sense. And I know the listeners, whenever I have a person who's gone through BUDS, always like to hear, as you went through, what was the biggest lesson that BUDS taught you that's carried forward in your, throughout your career? So that's really, really a good point. My first book, let me point to it right here, which is Six Days of Impossible Navy Seal Hell Week, has the subtitle, A Doctor Looks Back. Because 35 years after we went through training, 11 out of 70 of us that made it through freezing cold, soaking wet winter training, shivering uncontrollably without sleep for seven days, you know, we'd get together and look at each other and go, why the 11 of us? Why did the other 60 not make it? We're all equally qualified when we started physically and mentally, but 60 people quit. And when I went back and, and interviewed my uh, classmates, what I did discover is that we all shared a common attribute or lesson that life had taught us. It had not, we didn't learn this in SEAL training, I discovered after the fact. We had have, we have learned it through life. And that is, if you have been 
pushed and tested by either life or life's environments or physical challenges, uh, sports challenges, that those tests, those stresses tended to give you a, a tool for future endurance and future success. And this, you know, this applies to athletics. Knowing we were going to have this talk and thinking about performance, I wanted to point out that, you know, when you look at endurance athletes, when you look at the the people that are running the marathons, you know, incredible times, running four and a half minute miles for 26 miles, it's almost unimaginable to somebody that's ever tried to run a five minute mile. But yes. they're older. The people who do this and succeed at it are older because they have learned to endure. They have learned to process the pain and put it aside. So the brain, if you let the pain be in the front of your brain, the pain is all the brain's going to see. So in order to survive, no sleep, six days, freezing cold, shivering uncontrollably, people pushing you beyond your limits, you've got to be able to put aside the pain. And so in answer to your question, the SEAL teams and their design for Hell Week have a very real purpose, and that is to take the individual to the point of no return, mentally, physically, or both. And when you, and and by the way, that's different place in everybody's experience base. If uh, you got beat up really bad by life before you got there, your maximum is here. If you were the star quarterback and dated the prettiest, you know, cheerleaders, your maximum was down here. And quite honestly, the SEALs have always been disturbed by the fact that the star quarterbacks don't ever seem to make it through SEAL training. Because when it gets really, really hard, their brain lets the pain stay in the front and they go, you know, I got, I got options. I'm out of here. So the lesson that I discovered and that all 11 of us shared with each other after the fact was life had beat us up before we got there. And we had endurance lines that were already established. We were able to put pain aside. And that's what the marathoner does. And that's what the swimmer does. Put the pain aside. Forgive me for expanding on the athletic side of things, but I was just reading an article today about one of America's swimmers that has trained differently than anybody on the U.S. team. He has chosen to make his training sprint, 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 100% every time he swims, whereas everybody else does long-term endurance training at 80%. And he's he's chosen to say, nope, I'm going to run at 100%, which hurts, which is painful. So he'll he'll swim a, a sprint, give himself a 15-second rest, and then do it again at 100%. And he's planning to win a gold with that training routine that nobody's ever done. But all he's discovered is by training your body to accept pain, then you can maintain that level of discomfort for longer than most people can imagine. Well, I think that's a really good point. And it's something that I actually experienced in my own life. I was a competitive runner, went to the Naval Academy to run cross country and track initially. But I reached a point when I was in high school where I had kind of plateaued around my junior year. And I started to realize it was because when I was hitting that point that I didn't think I could get past, I didn't push myself to do it. And it wasn't until I had that mental breakthrough because it wasn't a physical one. It was really a mental one that, that I could 
carry myself to the next level. And once you did that, you could take yourself to the next level and the next level, et cetera. And my times probably from that point to the end of my senior year improved astronomically. I probably shaved off 30 to 45 seconds on a 5K um, in cross country. Um, And it's amazing when embrace discomfort. And I think David Goggins and other SEAL does a great job discussing it, that until you do that, you're never going to achieve your full capabilities because you're limiting yourself to what you think you can do. So I think that's an excellent point. Well, and allow me to make a follow-on point, if you would. When I was doing my interviews, and I, and I put this in my book before I did the interviews, I was embarrassed to share with my classmates that we were all very aware that there was this line that we were supposed to get to, usually Wednesday night, Thursday of Hell Week, having four days of, of no sleep and shivering, people will hit that wall. They'll hit the wall. And then they have to make the individual choice to step over it and go on. And, and what the instructors are doing, they're watching you and waiting for you to hit your personal point of no return. And that's when your brain says, the muscles will not do another push-up. The, the legs will not run any faster. The body is ceasing. And a lot of us, you know, played wrestling lacrosse, which were two great sports for SEAL training, we've discovered, and been pushed to our limits. But I never hit the wall. And I was embarrassed to tell my classmates that point where we were supposed to hit, I never got there. And two of my classmates went, oh, my God, I didn't tell anybody else, but neither did I. And I went, what? Well, wait a minute. How come the three of us, despite the fact we were pushed beyond what we had really imagined we could do, never viewed that as an absolute end point. And, and my physician conclusion is this. Life had already beat up the three of us before we went to SEAL training to the point that if the SEALs tried to take us past where life had already taken us, it would have been illegal. <laughs> So, oh, of course, the lesson there is life failures, life stresses, the alcoholic parent, you know, the adopted unwanted child, the people who whose only meat they had, and these are men in my class, was when they shot a squirrel with their slingshot because they were that poor. Those life lessons give you strong, strong building blocks to future success. And so when you spent your 12 because I think it turned out to be, uh, was it 12 years that you served in the SEAL teams or was it longer than that? 12 years, huh? Um, did you ever in those 12 years hit that point where you thought even though you had those life lessons, you had reached another level of discomfort during a deployment or a specific event, or did you never reach that point? There's a wonderful book out that I, I recommend to everybody called Lone Survivor, and it's the story of the sole survivor of a horrible wartime experience in Afghanistan where he buried in a stream breathing through a straw basically while the bad guys looked for him and then found himself half without clothes, you know, and having to E and E through the mountains of Afghanistan until he was finally found by uh, local, luckily friendly tribes were able to get him expelled. And that book is the only book that I've ever read that about SEAL experiences that, that is a clear example of why we do Hell Week, because he could not have done what he did, which to me, as I read it, was just still awe-inspiring, had he not been through Hell Week. 
So many people would have given up long before he reached that end point. And I give you that example because the answer to your question is almost nobody in the SEAL teams after we finish training ever is asked to go to that point again. But we've learned in our mind that that point really doesn't exist. So the lesson of Hell Week is to teach you that the absolute endurance, a failure point doesn't exist. You'll go until your body stops working. And and rarely, 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 uh, if ever, has that occurred in, in, in real mission scenarios. What's interesting, I happened to hear Marcus Luttrell, the lone survivor, give an interview, and he brought up two points that I thought were, were really interesting. One is, he said, when a friendly villager came upon him, he said his hand was locked and loaded on his weapon because he thought he's in this foreign country. He couldn't trust anyone. And he said he's not sure even to this day what possessed him not to fire on on the person, but he just sensed he wasn't going to hurt him, although all around him were other Taliban coming down on him. And then the other interesting thing is he said that the movie doesn't portray the worst part of the whole ordeal. And he he said, you know, a lot of, of what the movie depicts was was accurate, except maybe 80% of what actually happened to them. But he said where it got it completely wrong is he said the worst part of the whole mission was when the American troops actually got him and how daring a mission it was to get him out. Because at that time, the whole country was descending on them at that time. And it was like a group, small group of people trying to take on uh, thousands of people. And he said, that is the harrowing story that doesn't get talked about and should, because you know he considers all the people who went in there and got him to be the real heroes. He, he, he never thought he was getting out of there. So great story. And uh, a, a, I agree, a great book. So one of the things before we get into your transition uh, to becoming a doctor, I always at, like to ask Naval Academy grads is when I was a midshipman, I loved the forestall lectures because they would bring in guest speakers who would talk on various topics, but they were always so inspiring. And I always ask a Naval Academy grad, if you could go back and teach the midshipmen, which could be any college or soon to be college graduate, a lesson, what would it be? So I was actually encouraged to do a four-star lecture by one of my classmates who read my book and is a big fan of the story behind it. And he kept saying, you know, we need to bring you to the academy so that you can tell everybody, the plebes, the, the seniors that are getting ready to go out and join the Marine Corps or fly a jet airplane or find themselves in wartime scenarios the lessons that were learned that you and I have just, just discussed, quite honestly, uh, I would have a, a wonderful time telling the story of my plebe year uh, where I thought I was the leading demerit earner in my class until a recent reunion when a rear admiral came up to me and said, hey, what's this I hear about you saying you have more demerits than anybody in our class? And in, in my day, 300 Demerits would put you on the get out of here list, and I had 285. And, and I said, 285, Admiral, can you beat that? He goes, 295, son, you're in second place. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I wasn't a bad plebe. I was just a 
really inefficient plebe, and and I wasn't really good at what I did. You know, my granddad was a superintendent of the Naval Academy, and and I want I would want to tell people that story in so many different ways that failure is a great building block to future success. I got lots and lots of demerits in my first year, and I learned from each one a demerit for not polishing my shoes right. And darn if I didn't learn how to polish my shoes, and I got demerits marching off demerits because I didn't do it the way they wanted me to do it. So, you know, I would have a fun time telling the stories of both the Naval Academy and its learning opportunities because Plebeer has traditionally been most difficult. It's gotten a lot better. I just heard from a Naval Academy representative that they've got about a 95% freshman year success story. They're going on to their next years. They're not quitting like they did in the old days. Uh, because they've made it more positive, more reinforcing, more not gentle, but more of a learning experience about leadership and, and and becoming the man or woman that you want to be. So I would also tell the story of my grandfather and along the same lines, who a senior was one demerit from being kicked out and decided to go over the wall and take his date to the Army Navy Country Club for a dance on a Saturday night. Back in 1925, when he didn't own civilian clothes, and he got he got seen there by a professor who turned him into the superintendent. And by the way, the other the other midshipman who was with him was a later four star Admiral Kirkpatrick. And the two of them got caught, got sent to the superintendent's office, called to the soup's office the next morning, were left out there sweating for 30 minutes, and the soup called him in. Knew that if if these guys were put on report one more time, it'd be the end of their careers. And of course, this was after the war to end all wars, so who needs them anyway? But superintendent said, gentlemen, came to my attention. There were two men at the Naval, at the Army-Navy Country Club without authority last night. And I just wanted to let you guys know that I hope I never find out who those two men were. Dismiss. And the reason I tell that story, fast forward to his time at the Naval Academy, the exact same thing happened to two midshipmen. He did the same thing, called him in, made him wait, brought him in and said, gentlemen, I hope I never find out who those two men were dismissed. He looks up, he goes, okay, God, we're even now, right? <laughs> I paid the debt. You did me a favor. I learned from the experience and I passed that learning experience on. So, you know, those are the kinds of stories that may be fun to get a laugh in a four-style series lecture. Uh, that would be great. Ted Carter told me when he gave his, when he was leaving uh, the Naval Academy, it was the last thing he did. Um, he brought out a tape of him on The Price is Right, making a complete fool out of himself. And the forestall was all around what The Price of Right um, oh. about life. <laughs> well, well let, let's get into now this uh, transition you made, because um, there are not very many SEALs who then become doctors. I know Johnny Kim, who's an astronaut uh, currently, did it. But yours is an unusual path because you applied to both the Navy's medical program and the Army's. And the Army, it seemed, gave you a sweeter deal than the Navy. Is that pretty accurate? That's why I changed services. Um, I went to med school at 36 years old. I started, you know, started trying to get in at 32. And we had a child uh, at the time that I made the decision to switch from combat arms to medical because I had um, 
I had gotten out of the active SEALs after my five-year academy obligation was up because it was a really, really hard post-Vietnam time. There wasn't any money. We were jumping Korea War parachutes and using demolitions that were so old it was dangerous to use. And I thought, well, there are no wars. I'm going to get out during the reserves. But I had been out exactly six months when I called up the Navy and said, I made a horrible mistake. <laughs> Let me back in. Seems like they don't have 30 days of paid vacation out here and medical medical services cost money. And they, you know, they said, well, Lieutenant, we're in a drawdown now. We don't need you to stay in the reserves and we'll call you when there's a war. Well, fast forward, now I'm in the reserves and I go back to school and I get my MBA and I try to figure out what I'm going to do with my life because they darn they just won't start a war that'll bring me back on active duty. And so one day I come home to my wife and I finished my MBA and I went to work in Washington, D.C., te- you know, working with Naval Sea Systems Command, doing special operations research work. And I said, sweetheart, I, I don't like this job. I want to be happy like I was in as a Navy SEAL platoon commander again. And I think I want to go to med school. And she goes, whoops. <laughs> Okay, you know, we got a kid and it's going to be a while and that's going to be, we're going to be poor for a long time. And I said, yeah, but let me try. And she said, yeah, we were poor and happy when we got married and we can be poor and happy again. So go do what makes you happy. So boom, I sent off the med school applications. As soon as an application comes in, you're allowed to apply for scholarships. So boom, on day, I had them all filled out for the Army and the Navy, sent them in immediately. And got the responses back immediately, too. Navy says, we'll give you a three-year. Army said, we'll give you a four-year. And I was going to Wake Forest. It's a very expensive medical school. And um, I looked at my wife and said, sweetheart, we're changing uniforms because now I have two kids. And I'm 36 years old. And, um, and, and $50,000 a year tuition alone meant I needed to change uniforms. Now, the interesting side of that story is had nothing to do with changing services. Get ready to supercharge your hiring experience with Indeed, our fantastic partner. We at PassionStruck are all about seeking smarter, more efficient ways to do things, and Indeed perfectly aligns with this philosophy when it comes to hiring. It's more than just a job site. It's a comprehensive platform that revolutionizes the way you find the perfect candidates. With its powerful matching engine and over 350 million global monthly visitors, Indeed streamlines the hiring process, bringing top talent straight to you. No more sifting through endless unqualified resumes. Indeed does the heavy lifting just for you. And what I love about Indeed is its ability to centralize all your hiring activities. From scheduling interviews and screening applicants to messaging candidates, it's all in one place. During my career, I've hired thousands of employees, and I only wish I had Indeed's efficiency and speed back then. And here's a fact that absolutely blows my mind. 93% of employers... According to a recent survey, saying Indeed delivers the best quality matches over other job sites. That's quality and speed hand in hand. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash PassionStruck. Just go to Indeed.com slash PassionStruck right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash PassionStruck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember, so we put them all at passionstruck.com slash deals. Now, back to Passionstruck. But, you know, I went from a Navy commander to an Army second lieutenant to go to med school. 
And that would have happened whether it had the Navy or the Army scholarship. When you go from a combat arms to a service agency, the system appropriately reduces your rank back to an entry-level officer so you're not graduating without any experience into positions of significant responsibility. And that's that's what happened. I did I did benefit. Um, doctors are commissioned as captains, and I was commissioned as a major because I got half credit for prior commission service. But, you know, the inevitable happened. I finished my three-year residency program. I'm a brand-new doctor, ready to go, start teaching you know, other doctors how to be doctors. And my first assignment is commander of a clinic. Major, we need you to take command. Oh, come on. I'm a doctor. Let me go deliver babies and do doctor stuff. You can do that part-time. The other part-time, you got to be in command. Now, if I had to come out as a, an 05 or potentially 06, you know, I'd have been hospital commander, not have been able to do what I love, which was doctoring. Did you know that Forbes magazine recently cited that 70% of individuals who do personal development, masterminds, and one-on-one coaching benefited from better work performance, increased communication skills, and overall better relationships? And we at PassionStruck are obsessed with self-development, coaching, and mentorship. That is why we've created a free resource to help you unlock your hidden potential. Because people doing great things in business and life are just like you, only they've had a coach along the way. And we've got that covered too. Let us show you the systems and frameworks that we teach growth-minded individuals to help them step into their sharp edges execute on their passion journeys, and get predictable results time and time again. Go to passionstruck.com slash coaching right now, and let's get igniting. Well, I remember uh, you telling me one of the first uh, duty stations you, you got, I think, was Fort, Fort Bragg. And it's got to be pretty interesting when you're on an Army base, one, to see someone in an Army unit who's wearing a SEAL Trident, probably even more unusual to see a doctor who's wearing a seal trident. So I'm sure being surrounded by Rangers, being the Ranger school is there and um, special the different there, special yeah. operations that um, when people started to take notice, they were probably quite intrigued in wanting to have you become part of that, given uh, you know that community very well. How did you prevent that from from happening? And eventually, how did you then end up becoming flight surgeon for the the Delta Force commanders? Well, it wasn't hard for word to get out that there was an Army doctor walking around with a Navy SEAL patch on his uniform. And I had not been uh, on that post more than a month before the Delta Force guys come up to my door and go, hey, 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 you want to come play with us? Because we heard that that patch on your test is real. And and I very honestly said, you know, guys, been there, done that. Um, no, thank you. I've got a lot of things to do as a doctor. I'm teaching people how to be doctors. And I got nurse practitioners and PAs under my charge. I got a lot more babies I need to deliver because I was full service family practice. And um, I said, maybe in a couple of years, check back. You know, and, and interesting, almost two years to the day. About now, <laughs> and they put me on the standby list. And so, two years later, I'd done what I needed to do to get good at what I needed to get good at, and could be comfortable in an operational environment as a physician. And then I said, "Sure, 
And so the next three and a half years, I was the command surgeon for the Army's Delta Force, an experience I wouldn't trade for anything. But but I have to comment on your other comment. There's not too many Army doctors with Navy SEAL patches. The other thing that happened the first month I was there, I'm walking down the hallway of the main hospital and another Army doctor comes to, towards me and we're both wearing the patch on our uniforms and both of us see it. Both of us stop dead and point at each other. Who the heck are you and what are you doing wearing that patch? <laughs> and his name was Sean Mulvaney and Colonel Sean Mulvaney retired as a family physician. I ended up being one of his teaching staff. He was just starting his residency there. And when we we did the secret handshake and the elbow bumps and realized we neither of us were lying, I, I looked at him and I said, so I'm curious, why did you decide to switch services? And um, his reason was very similar to one of my own motivations. He goes, I didn't like ships. And, you know, the Navy was going to put doctors on ships during their residency. Uh, you'd have to do a general medical officer tour after your internship and then come back and finish your residency. And I go, I get it, because my first year and a half was on a destroyer out of the Naval Academy. And it was a, a major motivator for me to get through SEAL training. I did not want to go back. Well, so I, I wanted to hit on your other two books. So you have the, the one book about your naval SEAL experience that's right behind you. There you and go. Then you, and then you wrote another book about uh, your 30 years of being a doctor. And I wanted you to, to highlight a couple things out of that second book. You know, what are some, uh, for the, the listeners out there or people who are watching this on YouTube, what are a couple golden nuggets uh, out of that book uh, that you would like the audience to hear about? So I, the golden nugget is why I wrote this book. Um, the first book about SEAL training was written because nobody had ever written a book about Navy SEAL Hell Week that really look back at, at the why and the wherefore and the lessons of Hell Week. There's been, you know, every SEAL book that's ever been written mentions Hell Week and how it was a formative part of their lives. But when I tried to get somebody else to write it, I kept being told, look, you want it written, you write it. So I did. It, was a, it, was a, it took me three and a half years to interview everybody and get it written. So it was a, it was a mission of intent because it needed to get written. Second book, I actually began as I was nearing uh, retirement because I retired from active practice last year. You know, I still do medical stuff with veterans and with, with other patients and with companies as a medical advisor. But I started realizing that if I retired and all of these experiences at war and at peace as a military doctor and as a civilian doctor didn't get written down then they just might die with me. And they're good stories and they're fascinating stories. And they're every single chapter is a patient experience or a life experience becoming a doctor that I've told many, many times before as teaching points to residents and, and, and physician extenders so they can learn with that without having to experience some of the good and bad things that I experienced. And so it took me only less less than a year to write. It was just published last year. And it is, in fact, designed to be the combination of stories about doctors as medical students, as learning residents, as young doctors, 
as doctors at war and doctors in challenging situations such that anybody that ever thinks they want to be a doctor, read this book. It'll give you a good, true experience of what it is, what it means to go through the very difficult seven years of training or more that it takes to be a doctor and the costs to, you know, financially and personally and family that are associated with that. But it also then gives you the, you know, the tears and the smiles and the excitement that doctors, you know, get to experience. I, I have two Iraq war chapters because I was in Iraq with the 82nd Airborne Division after my time with Delta. And I was a full bird colonel by then. And we were in the early part of the war. And I had an American citizen who was six months pregnant come up to me and ask me if she, I would deliver her baby. And I said, no, ma'am, you need to go home. What are you doing here in a war zone? So, well, I'm with the USAID and I'm doing the most important thing in my life and I'm going to have the baby here. I didn't know I was pregnant when I got here. I'm not married. I'm going to have it here. So I had the choice of either letting it be delivered by the nuns that didn't have a hospital or oxygen or even a hospital in a war zone or bringing her into our facility and delivering her in. And I did. And she's a beautiful baby girl. And and I just got a picture of her as a teenager with her mom now because we've stayed in touch. And then, you know, what a wonderful experience for a doctor to have. And, and by the same token, there's another chapter where I get a call at two o'clock in the morning saying there's an enemy combatant on the way to me that's been shot multiple times when he tried to blow himself up in a suicide attempt at, at the main gate. And I needed to bring him in, stabilize him, and ship him off to the surgeons. And that story turns into this, you know, oh my God, family practice doctor, take a multiple gunshot wound, enemy combatant, and make him keep him alive long enough to let American doctors save his life. What 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 doctor ever expected that to be in their you know current experience basis? But there, you know, there were lessons from that, and I got the opportunity to point out that now Colonel Craig Dobson, then a young captain right out of pediatric training, became the hero of that night in keeping that soldier alive during a, a middle-of-the-night ambulance transfer to the surgeons, you know, and he's my hero to this day. So stories like that make the book an adventure to read and also an educational experience for those that might want to go into medicine. Yeah, so can you... I wanted to take this just a, a one step further because today when I go to the civilian medical system, you, you tend to get uh, passed around um, from specialist to specialist compared to, I remember, especially when I was in theater, when I was in the military, um, you didn't have that luxury. So can you, for the listener, talk about uh, kind of the difference between being a military physician and being a, a civilian physician, because I think there's a trend going on now where they're trying to take more and more of the military physicians out of those jobs. And I think we both agree that um, it's, it's kind of a tragedy that they're, they're doing that. Yeah, it, it is a tragedy. There's a huge governmental push to replace military uniform physicians with civilian providers. Um, and, you know, it's very unlikely that those civilian providers are going to jump out of an airplane into, into foreign countries and then stay there all day and all night 
you know, going to forward deployed areas where they're getting shot. It's just not going to happen. You know, they have, they have unions and they have people that are going to prevent that. And it's going to be very, very difficult for the military to meet its mission if that uh, planned transition occurs. I personally don't think it can and it hasn't happened yet, but it's being tweaked. But let me answer your first part of the question. First part of your question this way, the military medical system is fantastic. It creates the best doctors that a military training system can create far better, in my humble opinion, than most civilian systems do because in the military, our, uh, we don't pay malpractice insurance. We Therefore, we don't have lawyers telling us what we can and cannot do. As a family doctor in the military, I delivered my own babies. I took care of my kids when they were born. I followed them all the way to adulthood and beyond. I took care of the mothers. I took care of their parents. So I was womb to tomb care. And that's what family practice is designed to be. And as soon as I became a civilian, I had to sign up for malpractice insurance. And they said, well, it's 10,000 a year to be a family doc. But if you deliver babies, it's 100,000 a year. Well, what? Well, I can't do that. (laughs) <laughs> I'd have to deliver an awful lot of babies to pay that bill. I go, yeah, we know. So don't do it. And as a result, in the civilian world, you can't do what you were trained to do because there's lawyers telling you you can't. So, you know, for example, vasectomies for male sterilization, a procedure that I was an expert at better than most urologists. And we did it in our office on a routine basis. I did them in Iraq on a cot in the war zone. And when I became a civilian, they said, ah, That'll be $6,000 more if you want to do them in your office. I went, well, you had $300 of vasectomy. I can't break even. Not going to do it. You know, and so I'll send them to a urologist who, who will charge you $3,000. And, you know, that's part of the system that is broken. Money and, and lawyers have a huge impact on how medicine is practiced. And the reason patients get pushed out and into a world that they don't understand because you come to your average civilian trained primary care provider and statistically that's going to be a PA or a nurse practitioner, you know, that a family doc is supervising three to 10 of, uh, and they're going to go, I don't know if that thing on your skin is a cancer or not, go see a dermatologist. Whereas a family doc would go, that's nothing, let me freeze it off for you. Or they would go, gee, um, you're having all this GI distress. You better go see a gastroenterologist. Well, GI guy is going to go, GI, you probably are under a lot of stress. Go see a psychiatrist. And so patients get lost in this shuttle that occurs because we don't have enough well-trained family and internal medicine primary care providers that can own and manage a patient. And I'll give you one quick example of that. I, I'm gonna next week I'm heading off to Alaska to go salmon fishing, which is my summertime adventure that I've been doing for over 20 years. And my fishing buddy called me and goes, Bob, I just got out of the hospital. I don't think I'm gonna be able to go with you. And he tells me the story of being admitted for severe anemia following his COVID shot, which might be the reason he was severely anemic because blood dysphagias are a commonly reported side effect. But while they were working him up, they CT'd his abdomen, found a large mass in his stomach and said, "Uh uh-oh, you might have cancer. Go see an oncology doctor in six weeks. 
So he luckily he called me, said, Baba, I got blood transfusions and I'm waiting for a cancer doctor to tell me whether this thing in my stomach is cancer or not. So what I had to do is what I would have done for any of my own patients. And he was not. Because I got on the phone. I got my cancer doctor of choice. I got him in the next day. We got him diagnosed. We got him taken care of. He's in chemo now. And he's probably going to survive this life-threatening disease. But had I not been there to help him, and he's written me multiple times to say, thank you. The probability that he would have died from that delay, from that hospital's inappropriate decision to discharge him with an unknown mass in his abdomen. They did it because of money. You know, there's a certain amount of days you can stay in a hospital and get paid for. You know, in retrospect, uh, I believe had they known what I know, they would have said, look, stop, stay here. Let's bring the guy in. Let's get it diagnosed and taken care of. But if you're the patient and all you've been told is, well, you were anemic and we fixed it and there's something going on you need to see a cancer doctor for. You'd go, oh, okay. I guess you guys are acting in my own best interests, but but acting in our best interests right now for the system to work require that you have a family doctor that takes care of you. And you know, I just a similar example, I just had a conversation with my a, a female relative, I won't be specific, who's been seen by an OBGYN doctor, you know, all of her life. That's the only doctor she's ever seen, but she's in her 60s now. And the OBGYN doctor says, I don't do Medicare. <laughs> it's not what I do. You need, a, you need a real doctor, you know, to manage your blood pressure and thyroid and other things. And uh, she didn't understand that this doctor couldn't do what another doctor should and can. And so we're having to educate her about how the system works best. And quite honestly, I retired at, at, as COVID began coincidentally, and I'm really grateful for it because having been in charge of clinics my entire career and expecting people to do what I say and listen to what I say, I know I would be an unpleasant participant in the craziness that's going on right now. And it's making it harder and harder for people to know what the right thing is to do. Well, I couldn't agree more about that. I don't know if we want to go down that rabbit hole, but it seems like the CDC changes their uh, guidelines every other day, which makes it difficult for anyone to trust what is reality and what is not. I did want to go into this a little bit uh, further because um, as we discussed um, in a previous conversation, I spent nearly two decades um, trying to get both the civilian and then the VA medical system to help me figure out what was going on. I was having a number of symptoms, as we've discussed, of migraines, memory loss, cognitive decline, irritability, fatigue, other things. And I, in both places, kept getting stuck in this what I call land of protocol, where you are kind of passed around like a hot potato, especially if people can't figure out what the exact cause is. For me, you know, it ended up culminating in a meeting that I was that I had with a a DO um, who happened to be a psychiatrist at the VA who said, you have to be your own advocate if you want to get the care that you need. And I kind of wanted uh, you to maybe talk to the audience about if they are facing medical issues, 
what does it mean to be your own advocate in the medical system? And what are what is some of your advice for them to help navigate it? Excellent, excellent question. And, and I do make brief mention to that in my book that you must, in fact, as you get older, we're all gonna we're all gonna dissolve into back to dust and things, bad things are gonna happen. And sometimes they start early and sometimes they hit you midlife. Oh, inevitably they're gonna hit you in later years. If you don't learn how to be your own advocate, then badness is almost guaranteed. The biggest advice that I can give to anybody, and I gave to my relative recently, is find a family physician. I made the same advice to my brother uh, recently, find a family physician because he just became Medicare eligible and having been self-employed his whole life and a very successful man, but unable to afford the ridiculous costs of self-insured, you know, medical care, you know, he called me and goes, well, how do, what do I do now? And I said, get a family physician, not a, not a PA, not a nurse practitioner, but a family physician or a, be associated with a group that has family physicians who can become your managed care advisor. And when you get in that place and build a relationship with your PA, your nurse practitioner, your family doc, it's part of a managed care group. Do not be afraid. And matter of fact, insist on always getting an answer to the question, why? And why? And why not? You know, when a doctor says, I'm going to do the following blood tests on you, why? And I'm going to give you this medicine, why? And, you know, I love it when my patients ask me, hey, doc, are you doing everything you can possibly for do for this problem that I have? You know, and my answer is always, well, based on what we know today, yes. But the truth in medicine changes on a regular basis. You know, what we know about <laughs> COVID and the Delta virus is changing on a daily basis. But but you need somebody other than yourself to be that um, translator. And I tell people all the time, if you don't understand what somebody tells you in the medical world, you call me, I'll translate. And it's really important because I'll send people to surgeons, for example, to have a gallbladder removed or a dermatologist to have a malignant melanoma removed. And then they're, they're told all of the follow-on stuff and they don't understand. I'll say, just pick up the phone and call me. Don't call them because in many cases, they don't know who you are. They just know that you had this or you had this. And, and I'm the guy that's going to tell you whether the medicine you can take works or interacts with the other ones or whether there's really something else we ought to consider. So use your relationships with doctors. Go to them when you're not sick. Make Get an annual physical. You know, the, Medicare pays for them. They want you to get them. And the benefit will be when something comes up, you'll have somebody you can talk to about it. I can't even count the number of times that a patient has come to see me for a standard routine checkup. And the last thing they say to me as I'm picking up my computer to walk out of the room is, Oh, by the way, Doc, that is really important. I stop what I'm doing, put my computer down, and I go, what? What is it that you are going to tell me? And always, or more often than not, that leads to, to a real issue or a real problem or a real question that needed to be addressed. So, yes, be your own advocate. Don't, don't think you have to know how, how to speak medical because, you know, all our words are Greek and, you know, Greek and Latin. 
So, but have somebody that can translate for you. Here's a great story. I got a phone call yesterday from a SEAL classmate of mine about a 90-year-old relative of his. And he said, my 90-year-old relative is having hallucinations, auditory hallucinations, talking to the, the, the people that aren't there. You know, is this Alzheimer's? I said, okay. Took a quick history. I started with what medicines are you taking? First word out of mouth. Well, they take this bone medicine for osteoporosis. Stop right there. Time out. Give me the name. Medicine is alendronate. Look it up. Number one side effect of alendronate fix calcium in the brain is auditory and visual hallucinations. So get this 90-year-old off this medicine that's causing very little benefit and watch these symptoms go away in a week or two. But if they didn't have somebody to talk to, these would have gotten potentially worse. So you, you need somebody that you can pick up the phone and call and get evaluated. Well, great. And if the viewer or listener would like to learn more about you or get in touch with you, how can they do that? And how can they get access to your books? So www.swordsandseals.com is my primary website that has the two books that we're talking about here, Swords and Seals. And it has a way to contact me directly. The um, My email address is from my Bud's training class. I was Bud's class of 81. So if you want to email me directly, buds81 at AOL.com. And, you know, and if you know people that want to know more about medicine, military medicine, share this podcast with them because it's, it, you know, John's a resource. I'm a resource. Reach out and touch us. Share this, share this podcast with people. Okay, and before we close, I know you're in the middle of a third book, and it happens to do with letters from your grandfather, I recall. Can you just give that a plug? Oh, please let me. This is Corporal Edwin Barton, my great-great-granddad, who wrote 260 letters to his wife, Sarah, during the Civil War. And those letters have been laboriously transcribed word for word, misspelling and punctuation exactly as he wrote it uh, while he was a corporal in General Grant's headquarters. And the story itself is absolutely fascinating and historically significant because while I was researching the battles and the ships and the officers that he's talking about, I stumbled across a book uh, that was entitled The History of the 7th Connecticut Infantry Regiment During the Civil War published in 1905, and it talks all about the unit he was assigned to and tells me what all the battles were. So 26 chapters in this book now have introductory sections from this 1905 history book. And so you can read what the battle is and then read his letters home about it. And it's it's a fascinating first-hand account of a part of the war that is very little history written about. And and I got to throw because, you know, John, of our academy backgrounds, his only son went to West Point, class of 1898, and he played football with another gentleman named Smedberg, class 1898. And these two men, where is it? There you go, had a son and daughter who married and became my grandfather, who is the three star superintendent of the Naval Academy I told you about. So it's, oh. and I have two great great granddads in the Civil War who had. Sons that went to West Point, 1898, who created the couple that was my granddaddy. So it's kind of a neat family connection there also. 
It's called My Dear Sarah, Civil War Letters, 1861 to 1865. What an incredible journey that you've been on writing that book. Sounds like uh, just a fascinating tale. And Dr. Bob, thank you so much for spending time with us today on the show. What a great guest you've been. John, thank you and Pass and Struck for having me. Dr. Bob Adams' episode was one of seven that we did during the month of September that are focused on veterans who served during the 20-year global war on terror. The others, if you miss them, include the Black Hall Racing Team, which competes in Moto America, NASCAR Xfinity driver Jesse Ouija, astronauts Kayla Barron and Wendy Lawrence, and Navy SEALs William Branham, Mark Devine, and Dan O'Shea. All fantastic episodes, and I hope you get a chance to check them out. I also mentioned today another episode that I did earlier in the year with former Navy SEAL and astronaut Chris Cassidy that is one of my favorites I've recorded to date. If there is a person you would like me to interview, please DM me on Instagram at John R. Miles. And if you hadn't had a chance to check it out, visit our YouTube channel, also at John R. Miles. Please subscribe and check out the over 175 different videos we have across a myriad of different topics. Thank you so much for supporting this podcast and helping our mission of making passion go viral for millions. Your support means so much. And if you truly love today's episode, please send it to some of your friends who need a weekly dose of inspiration. Thank you so much for joining us. The purpose of our show is to make passion go viral. And we do that by sharing with you the knowledge and skills that you need to unlock your hidden potential. If you want to hear more, please subscribe to the Passion Strike podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts at. And if you absolutely love this episode, we'd appreciate a five-star rating on iTunes and you sharing it with three of your most growth-minded friends so they can post it as well to their social accounts and help us grow our Passion Struck community. If you'd like to learn more about the show and our mission, you can go to passionstruck.com where you can sign up for our, our newsletter, look at our tools, and also download the show notes for today's episode. Additionally, you can listen to us every Tuesday and Friday for even more inspiring content. And remember, make a choice, work hard, and step into your sharp edges. Thank you again for joining us. 